We come this morning to God's word as found in the New Testament book of Acts. I've suggested to you beforehand that uh, this is the chronicling of the birth of the church. And so the book of Acts covers the church with respect to age zero on to age 60, the first 60 years of church history. Before I go any further in this introduction, I want to tell you that I hope you all had a good week. Uh, God gave me a great week. I got to share the gospel four times this week to God's glory, to God's glory. And uh, one individual, one young man in his 20s trusted Christ to be his savior. So pray for the initial D, that he'll grow in grace and the knowledge of his Lord and Savior. And may I say, if you got to share the gospel this week, would you just tell somebody before you leave the church campus for them to pray with you for the person you shared the gospel with? And this is a new week, and we can share our faith and hope in Jesus Christ to the lost this week as we can every week. That being said, the book of Acts has some key verses. Last time we looked at the key verse of chapter 1, verse 8, which uh, told us that Jesus said prior to ascending to the Father's right hand, he said in Acts 1.8 to his disciples, and by extension to each of us who believe in him in this church age, this, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses, and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. That's a key verse in the book of Acts. It's an outline of the whole book, actually. The second key verse, by way of introduction to the whole book of Acts, is Acts chapter 2, verse 42. If you have your Bibles, please turn to Acts 2, verse 42. Still by way of review, in Acts 1, verse 8, last time, I hope you remember that we saw four essentials for any church. We saw them as being the Holy Spirit and his power are essential. The actual cornerstone of every true church is Christ Jesus himself, not a pastor, not a building, Christ. We said that an essential for any church is evangelism, doing what God enabled me to do this week of sharing the gospel with lost persons. That's something we all can and should do. And fourth, an essential that every church should exhibit is world discipleship impact. This message is too good for us to hoard to ourselves in the Bahamas. We must tell the world through our missionaries that Christ has died, arisen, and will forgive the sinner who will believe in him and only him for salvation. That's what we saw last time. In addition, last time we asked and answered the question, why does the book of Acts include the summary of three journeys, but not just journeys, specifically missionary journeys? Why would the book of Acts take the time to reveal the history of three missionary journeys? Last time we said, because God is a missionary God. God the Father only had only begotten Son, one, and he sent him to earth to be a cross-cultural missionary to planet earth. Second, God's church is to be a missionary church. We are told by Jesus Christ in the Great Commission, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. The gospel needs to go everywhere. That's why these missionary journeys are in the book of Acts. Third, the gospel of Jesus Christ is absolutely too good and too revolutionizing to be limited to just one nation, just one language, just one people group, just one tribe, just one country. The gospel of Christ is too good for re, uh, limiting it to, in any way, but to get it out to the whole world because it's God's power unto salvation for all who will believe in Christ. 
And fourth, these three missionary journeys are included in the book of Acts because although we live in an extremely darkened by sin world, although it would seem that Satan is prevailing in many different quarters of planet Earth, although that is the current truth, that there is still, by God's design, persons who are still open to the truth, persons who still will come to Christ alone for their salvation if we will tell them the way to salvation. That's our job. It says in the scriptures, whosoever will may come. Implication, people will come as they hear the gospel. Remember I said the study that shows that on average every single day of every single year at least 50,274 persons on average come to put their faith in Jesus Christ for the first time around the globe. Isn't that something? Whosoever will may come and many do because of the spirit drawing them to Christ. Isn't that encouraging? Keep sharing your faith. I don't care if Mrs. McGillicuddy didn't accept Christ when you shared the the gospel with her last month. Share it with her again. Keep sharing our faith. Oh, to God, I pray that this congregation would grow by conversion growth and only will if we share the gospel. You, you go where I can't go. You know people I will never know. You need to share the gospel as I do too. Okay, let's go on to today's verse. Today's key verse for the book of Acts is Acts 2, verse 42. So again, let's give our attention to God's holy word as we read Acts 2, verse 42. And they, that is the first believers in the first century, continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship in the breaking of bread and in prayers. That is telling us, brothers and sisters in Christ, the timeless must-haves, by the way, children, will you count how many times I say must-have in this sermon? That's the first time I said it. Count the must-haves, all right? These are four must-haves that were true in the first century and are true in this century. And the verse again says, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, that's one, fellowship, that's two, in the breaking of bread, that's three, and in prayers. So let me give you a very quick context of what happened leading up to chapter 2, verse 42. Real quick, in the verses that lead up to 2.42, the following has already happened. The risen Lord Jesus Christ has ascended back to heaven, and Matthias has been selected to be an apostle, that is an eyewitness of the resurrected Christ, to replace Judas Iscariot, who was a fake, and who suicided. And the Holy Spirit has descended upon the believers in Jerusalem to permanently indwell them, to empower them to be witnesses to Christ, to the world. And the same thing happens when a person in this age trusts Jesus Christ for salvation. Immediately, the Holy Spirit comes and fills and dwells in that person, never to be evicted. Isn't that great? That is great. What else happened prior to 242 is that the church was born. The church didn't exist in the Old Testament. But the church was born in Acts chapter 2 when day of Pentecost, 50 days after Christ's resurrection, the Holy Spirit who was promised descended on the believers in the room in which they found themselves, and he filled and controlled them, and they spoke in known languages that were previously unknown to them to facilitate the gospel getting far and wide in the whole world. It's like me being able to speak fluent Italian when I have never studied it because an Italian person needs to hear the good news about Jesus. That's what tongues are. 
And Peter has also preached a powerful sermon before 242. In fact, 3,000 Jewish persons have been converted to Christ responding to Peter's powerful, spirit-empowered sermon. By the way, those people who say the church shouldn't pay attention to numbers, I guess they have a criticism with them counting up how many were saved when Peter preached. 3,000, they have the number. And so, when we come to 242, again, to repeat... And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread, and in prayers. When we come to that single key verse, we see in the first place, must have, number one, is preaching and teaching. You do not have a church if you do not have preaching and teaching of the Bible. And they continued, the verse said, steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. Doctrine is a Bible word for teaching. That's all it means. And so the first baby church continued to teach right doctrine and to be taught right doctrine. You know, in the church today, doctrine is a dirty word to some Christians. Oh, it's boring. Oh, it's hard to understand. Oh, no one comes to church to hear doctrine. They want to be entertained. They want to feel good. No, God says a must-have for a church is proper Bible preaching and teaching. Do you know what you get when you just settle for sermonettes? You get Christianettes. You get little sermonettes, little devotional thought, five or ten minutes in the service. When you preach sermonettes, all you can expect is Christianettes. It was Billy Sunday. Some of you will know a very world-renowned evangelist of yesteryear. He said this, quote, The backslider likes preaching that wouldn't hit the side of a house while the real disciple is delighted when the preached truth brings him to his knees. And properly preached and properly taught, this book will bring the man in the pulpit and all of you in the pew to our knees in worship and life change. So the first must-have for the church is preaching and teaching, there's a second must-have in this verse, and it's fellowship. And they continued steadfastly, it says, in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship. The word for fellowship is translation from the Greek word koinonia, and all that koinonia means is partnership or sharing. So if you're married, you have fellowship with your spouse. Your brothers and sisters in Christ, you would have fellowship with your brothers and sisters in Christ in your church. You're to have a partnership with them, a sharing with them. It is God's intention, hear me, that believers partner first with Christ and then with other believers. I pray regularly for the other churches in Nassau who preach the truth of God's word. I regularly pray they'll be blessed because I'm not in a competition. I'm in a fellowship. I'm in a time of partnership and sharing. In 1 John, not the Gospel of John, 1 John 1, verse 3, it says, That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us. There it is. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father. There's a second form of fellowship. And with his Son, Jesus Christ, there's a third form of fellowship. Now, as much as I like peas and rice and grouper and vitamol, that's not fellowship. <laughs> In and of itself, that's not fellowship. 
You could have fellowship with those things, not that you couldn't, but if you call that fellowship, you're not counting it as biblical fellowship. Biblical fellowship is two fellas in a ship. (laughs) Two fellas in a ship, whether the sea is calm or whether the sea is tempestuous. Two fellas in one ship doing life together. The highs of life, the lows of life, and the average mediocrity of life. Two fellas in a ship. You know Christianity is not a solo sport. Some track events are solo sports, but not Christianity. Christianity is a team sport. We have fellowship with the Father, fellowship with the Son, and fellowship with each other. Two fellas in a ship. We have to have fellowship. You cannot have a church by the definition of Acts if you do not have fellowship. If everybody just came here silently, went home and never contacted each other through the week, we would cease to function properly as a church. Are you phoning people that aren't coming to the service because of comorbidities? Hey, I miss you. I love you. What's going on in your life? How can I pray for you? That's fellowship. And in this unique time, we need to be picking up the phone and burning up the phone lines to call each other. It's not just my job. I phone people every week. But it's not just my job to do that. We're all in fellowship, right? You pick up your phone. No matter who you think of that doesn't have the ability to come to service, they probably have a phone. Phone them this week. Because to be a church, you must have fellowship. The third must have according to Acts 2.42. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and in fellowship and in the breaking of bread. That is communion. That is some people call it the Eucharist. That is what we call the Lord's Supper in Calvary Bible Church. And God has given us the mandatory command if we gather as believers and call ourselves a church that we regularly take the Lord's Supper. The Bible doesn't say with what frequency. Some churches do it every Sunday. That's fine. Some churches do every month. That's what we do. There's no frequency given in Scripture, but we are commanded to break bread and remember Christ's cross. Amen? Amen. That's what we're going to do in a few moments in this service. Because you know why we have to do that? Because we're sheep, and sheep have poor memories. And we need to remember the cost of our salvation regularly. With that bread and that juice, we need to be reminded because we forget. And so the first must have to be a church is preaching or teaching the Bible. The second is fellowship. The third is the Lord's Supper. And the fourth must have, according to verse 242, is that they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and the breaking of bread and in prayers. Prayers. You cannot call yourself a church if you do not give time and effort to praying together. Don't call yourself a church if you don't make time to be part of praying with one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. You know that prayer, fundamentally, is a declaration of dependence on God. My great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather, Witherspoon, one of the first presidents of Princeton University in New Jersey, represented New Jersey in Constitution Hall, and he signed both the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution of the United States of America, It's one thing to have a declaration of independence from Britain, but let us never have a declaration of independence from God because we don't pray with each other. Prayer is a beautiful declaration of dependence on God. Leonard Ravenhill, some of you know the name, said, and I quote, 
No man is greater than his prayer life. We have many organizers, but few agonizers. Many players, but, and many payers, but few who are prayers. Many singers, a few clingers, lots of pastors, few wrestlers, many fears, few tears, much fashion, little passion, many interferers, few intercessors, many writers, few fighters. End of quote. Wow. The more things change, the more they stay the same. A must-have for this church, or if you're visiting today, a must-have for your home church, and a must-have for every Bible-believing church around the planet is that we pray together every Monday night at 6 o'clock. We have a Zoom prayer meeting, and I know that not all of you are tech-savvy with your computers, so you don't know how to join us, but those of you who are tech-savvy, you should be in that Zoom prayer meeting. We have 25 to 30 persons who are faithful in that prayer meeting. That's 8% of our congregation. A faithful 8%, but a meager 8%. This church will not go forward in the blessing of God unless we pray together. The link for this prayer meeting on Zoom is sent out every Monday before the evening, so you can join us tomorrow if you never have. And if you've always been joining us, please continue. An essential must-have for any church is prayers together. Let's change it, Calvary. Let's change it. Little prayer, little power. Much prayer, tell me, much power. No person is greater than his or her prayer life. No person is greater than his or her prayer life. And still on the topic of prayer, you'll recall, I hope, that our vision as a church is to make fully committed followers or disciples of Jesus Christ. That's why we exist. If we stop making fully committed followers of Jesus Christ, let's padlock the doors on this wonderful building and go do something else Sunday, 10.30 to 11.30. We exist to do what the Bible tells us we're to do, which is to make fully committed followers of Jesus Christ, period, nothing more, nothing less, nothing else. Now, how does the making of disciples happen? Well, the great missionary Hudson Taylor, missionary to China, said this, quote, there are four basic elements to making disciples. One, prayer, two, prayer, three, prayer, and four, the word of God. In that order and about in that amount. Pray, pray, pray the word. That's how we're going to make fully committed followers of Jesus Christ. Amen? You know, it may surprise you, but you can have a church without Bibles, and you can have a church without money, and you can have a church without a building, and you can have a church without a pastor, but you cannot have a Bible New Testament church without all of the following, Bible preaching and teaching, fellowship, the Lord's Supper, and prayer. You're not a church if you don't have all four. 2.42, Two forty-two, 
And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and the breaking of bread and in prayers. It's simple. Not hard to understand. And it begins, the whole of those four activities begin with the qualifier, and they continued steadfastly. (laughs) It wasn't circumstantial if they felt like it. It wasn't if the weather didn't rain. It wasn't if they didn't have a problem. They steadfastly continued in those four things. They didn't give up. A.W. Tozer wrote, and I quote, coming to Christ marks both an end and a beginning. The end of a search the beginning of a new life. Perhaps you thought you had arrived when you became a Christian. And you had. You arrived at the starting line of a race, a race to be continued steadfastly as the first converts to Christianity learned in Acts chapter 2, verse 42. And they continued steadfastly in dot, dot, dot on those four things. So much of the Christian life is daily. (laughs) You can't live the Christian life in week segments. You can't live the Christian life in month segments. You can't live the Christian life in year segments. So much of the Christian life is daily. When the sun comes up until it goes down, you live the Christian life every single day. Steadfast, continuance in what God says we're to continue in. I like to eat at Subway. My favorite sandwich is the Italian BMT, double tomato, lettuce, onion, green pepper, tons of oil and tons of vinegar and mustard, yellow mustard. That's my sandwich. And sometimes when I go to Subway, <laughs> I see these dear ladies wearing those gloves. And how many times do I have to put those gloves on and off in a day? I don't even want to think. Bless them. And they're making my sandwich, and I say, you know, <laughs> people that work at Subway should get a pass on making sandwiches for their children who go to school. Someone else should make those sandwiches. You ladies making us sandwiches. They look at me funny. <laughs> you kidding, man? <laughs> you think I get a pass on making sandwiches for my kiddies who go to school? I make my sandwiches at home, and I make them every day for my kids to go to school. And I make sandwiches at Subway every day because that's my job. Because life is daily. And we all eat. And plenty of us like sandwiches. And plenty of us go to Subway. Christian life is daily. It's not just when you touch down here in this lovely sanctuary on a Sunday, and then you stop being a Christian in how you live the rest of the days, and then come back and touch down again in the sanctuary on Sunday. No, the Christian life is daily, every day. People are watching you. I'm in Costrate the other day, buying something, and a lady, I had to pass between the lady and the shelf, and I didn't want to be rude, so I said, will you please excuse me, I just got to get by. She goes, sure, you're the pastor, right? I've never laid eyes on this woman in my life. You're the pastor, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Pastor Rob Elliott, pleased to meet you. She gave me her name. She said, I listen to you on the radio in Echoes of Calvary every Sunday at 730. I recognize your voice. All I said to her was, please excuse me. That's all I said. Guess what? You are being watched as well. People know who you are. They see your car go out every Sunday to your church and come home after service. They know all about you. What are they seeing as you live your Christian life daily? Are they seeing consistency in your life with what you say you believe? Oh, God, help us. We don't need any more hypocrites. No more hypocrites necessary. 
Subway, next time you go, eat fresh. <laughs> Think of me. <laughs> and the dailiness of the Christian life, all right? Similarly, God's church has to be continuously, steadfastly, hearing the preaching and teaching of the Bible, fellowshipping with each other, two fellows in a ship, coming to the Lord's Supper, and praying. <laughs> That's what we're going to be about. Now, there's a warning later in the New Testament about failing to come together as a church. Real warning. Hebrews 10, 23 to 25, listen. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. Not for, watch it, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. Can I say it again? Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the matter of some. You can think of a Christian who has stopped going to church. I met one in the sea yesterday. He stopped coming to Calvary Church when he was young, and now he's a man. All around town, I say I'm the pastor of Calvary Bible Church. I used to go to Calvary Bible Church. Oh, where do you go to church now? I don't go anywhere. Forsaking not the assembling of yourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Do you know why we have to regularly assemble? It used to be that persons went to church only if something terrible prevented them. Now, people stay away from church unless something exceptional makes them go to church. We're off track. Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together weekly, every Lord's day, as is the matter of some. Because you know what it does when we bother to assemble together weekly and not forsake the assembling of ourselves together? Here's what it does. It settles our hope. You may have come in today with not a lot of hope, but the person beside you on your left or your right could be full of hope in Christ, and you can get in on some of that hope if you don't dash away from this campus right away after we dismiss. Regularly assembling together also stimulates love and good deeds. Why did I tell you if you shared your faith to tell someone before you left the property today? Because you telling about your obedience to share the gospel will stimulate others to love the lost and to share the gospel as well. And we've got a city to reach for Christ. We've got a commonwealth to reach for Christ. We've got a world to reach for Christ. Regularly assembling with one's church settles our hope, stimulates our love and our doing of good, and encourages us all around. Do you know what? In Canada, where I'm from, people love to camp. I know they do here, too. And when you camp, you need water and you need fire. You need something to cook with, and you need something at night so it's cool to keep you warm. You build a fire. You know when you build a fire and you put the small things on first, the tinder, and then it gets to be good, you put light branches, and then you get the bigger branches, you got a nice roaring fire, right? After that fire has burned a long time, the branches start to get so hot, they're red-orange, and even the hottest parts are white. Have you ever noticed that when a branch that gets white-hot in a fire when it cracks, part of that branch might be kicked away from the fire slightly from the other coals. Do you know what happens to a coal that gets spit by heat away from the other coals if it doesn't get pushed back to the coals that are still hot? It cools gradually. Gradually. It cools 
And if nobody takes that coal, that renegade rogue coal, and pushes it into the fire that's still hot with charcoal, eventually you'll see a little puff of smoke, and it's out. People who forsake the assembling of themselves together are the little piece of coal away from the rest of the coals. So guess what, family? You need to be asking each other, of the coals that you're not seeing for over a year, are you still in the fire? Are you still reading your word? Are you still praying? I know there's COVID and people are bound to their houses. I get that. But can you phone somebody who's not able to come for whatever reason to church and say, are you still in the campfire? Are you still glowing for Christ? Fires teach us a lot. When my family was young, my family had some means, and they bought a summer house in Canada. We went to a fine Bible-believing church. My parents were saved in their adult years. Me and my two sisters trusted Christ to be our Savior as young children, and we went to a fine Bible-believing church with Sunday school and ministries for all ages, and we were growing as Christians. We were glowing as Christians in the wonderful coals of the campfire of a solid Bible-believing church. And then we bought this property, totally undeveloped, 33 acres, woods, beautiful. We took bulldozer and had a bulldozer man dig an acre-big pond, a swimming pond, 16 feet deep, diving board, island, fishing. It was great. There was a problem. At first, when we went to the summer home to work on the land and then to build the cottage, we went to church, to a sound Bible-believing church in a little town near the property. But as life went on, we started to rarely go to the church that was near the summer property. And then we started to have church at our dining room table. You know, a little Bible, a little sermonette for little Christianettes. Then, as time passed, we stopped having any attention to the Bible or worship at all. We just got up on a Sunday, wolfed down some breakfast, and cleaned, cleared a road or planted trees. Never gave any attention to the Lord as a family. The coals had moved off the fire and cooled and cooled and cooled, and then a little white puff of smoke. And so when church people unexpectedly, at the city church people unexpectedly came to our house, we had things to hide quickly that we didn't want them to see. Things that didn't honor the Lord. We knew it, but we were still imbibing in those things. Those are some of my most sad memories growing up, that we had to hide things when fellow brothers and sisters unexpectedly came to our house. Our lives should be open books before God. We must have Bible preaching and teaching regularly. We must have fellowship, two fellows in a ship. We must have the Lord's Supper, which we're about to have in a moment. And we must have prayer. 
Prayer alone with God, of course, prayer with our nuclear families, but also prayer with each other, 8%. I challenge you, 8%. It's not that hard. (laughs) You don't have to have a PhD or a college degree to understand what God says the church should be, what God says are must-haves for any church. You can have a church without a building, without a Bible, without a preacher, but you can't have a church without preaching and teaching and fellowship and the breaking of bread and prayer. That simple. Let's do better. Let's do better to the glory of God. And for our guests, we're so glad you're here. As you go back to your churches, maybe they have to do better too. Maybe you could be catalytic to helping them do better, so... Heavenly Father, we thank you for the plain and simple truth of Scripture. Lord, it's convicting. You love us as we are, but you love us too much to leave us where we are. You want to draw us closer to Christ and the campfire. Oh, Lord, may we take it to heart. May we remember these truths after we get in our cars and go our way. And now as we come to the Lord's Supper, may we be full of praise, worship, and thanks. And we pray this in Jesus' name, and God's people said, Amen. Amen.